This is episode number three with Scott Reardon. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on your impactful journey. for you guys to hear this episode. Scotty Reardon is an above-knee amputee. He's two-time water ski world champion, two-time Paralympian, and a Paralympic gold medalist in track and field. He's also an entrepreneur and an all-round legend caring deeply for his communities. This one is great because Scotty and I actually talk more in depth about his athletics career than what I did with Kurt and Katrina in the first couple of episodes. And this is because Scotty has shaped a lot of his resilience and mental training from each part of his journey, and it's all super powerful. This is another long episode, and I did consider splitting it into two, but decided it's more powerful to listen to it all the way through without me interrupting you in the middle. And it's the last 20 minutes that you will learn the most from as he goes quite deep and shares advice and learnings that has come from these times. In this episode, you will learn how mindfulness and meditation practices took Scotty from sixth in the world to number one, lots of tips on mental resilience and how we can all implement processes into our daily lives to achieve our goals and dreams, and you will learn about the power of choice. We also talk about Scotty's horrific incident when he lost his leg, the deep drivers behind the legacy he's creating outside of his sport, the nice parts about the drug testing experiences that he's had, the unbelievable roller coaster he's been on through his sporting career, and the gratitude cyclone he's created and continues to enhance. <laughs> well, what a way to start. Scotty, we're sitting here at the Gold Coast on camp uh, preparing for the Para World Championships in London. Uh, you're competing tomorrow. We've uh, I'm here with my athletes and we've just got back from a training session. I must say, mate, you're looking really good. Oh, thanks. It's, it's always a bit, a bit weird when you, when you go and you train and you don't really compete a lot and um, you don't really know where you're at this time of year. It's just you that phase from, from your base to start north and speed and start racing. You just kind of never know where you are. So having somebody who hasn't seen me run for a little while, um, that's good to hear. I was actually talking about just the way that you look in general, I mean, but yeah, we'll, t- we'll talk about your running too. <laughs> <laughs> now, Scotty, I love catching up with you and I love our phone chats because there's always so much excitement and, and a lot of energy that's created when we've collaborated. So I'm excited to, uh, to see what unfolds in this chat. Yeah, it, it is always good. I mean, we, we have... We all have people in our support network and you're likely to be one of those and those chats that we do have um, always come off the, the phone bouncing and full of energy after we've had that chat. So hopefully um, we, can, we can inspire a few people to, to have a, a good afternoon or a good morning depending on when they're listening to this. 
For sure. Now, before we move forward, we probably should just go back to how we started with that little bit of a laugh in your comment there. That was uh, that was what your dad said to me when he saw my tattoos for the first time, uh, the first time I'd ever met him. I must say he's a very honest and down-to-earth bloke. Now, your parents have obviously been great support for you growing up and allow you to chase your dreams and your goals from a young age. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really fortunate, not just for mum and dad, but my entire family. I come from, from quite a large family. So dad has a number of siblings and I think my grandmother has a total of like 54 grandchildren. So cousins coming out of my ears, basically. So um, the wider the family, but then also um, my, my immediate family, my brothers and both my sisters and mum and dad, they've always... They've always been a very important part of of my journey, and um, they've, without probably even noticing at times, been a huge inspiration um, to me to be able to be successful in whatever I've chosen. And uh, yeah, I'm very very fortunate that they've always uh, always stand behind me and always make sure that um, I'm on the right path. I'll offer advice when they need to, and um, sit back and, and watch it and enjoy the journey with me when when they believe I'm on the right path. I've known you since uh, 2010, I believe. And we've been teammates on two Paralympic teams, so London 2012 and Rio 2016 Paralympics. I've worked very closely with you and your coach, Irina Dovaskina, uh, for three years when I was based at the Australian Institute of Sport and uh, continuing on after that. Mate, I've seen you grow phenomenally as an athlete and as a genuine human. Thanks. Yeah, um, it's been... It's been a very interesting journey for me, actually. I, I came into sport and not really knowing what to expect with, with huge dreams and aspirations to be to be an, an amazing athlete. But little did I know the people I'd met along the way and, and how they would try, well, how they would be themselves, but that would inspire me to become a better human and, and try and, and live a better quality of life for myself, but also have the power to be able to give back to, to certain people and certain groups of people um, through a number of different avenues. Absolutely. And we're going to talk a lot about that in this chat. So you uh, grew up in Tamora population of how big is tomorrow three thousand people uh, four and a half thousand people four and a half thousand yeah. almost the same size as Coba. almost <laughs> uh it's a very rural farming community tomorrow is how would you say that small communities have sort of shaped your journey and what was it like growing up in tomorrow uh, the first thing I think about when I think of tomorrow, and I think a lot of small people from small communities would actually relate, is you're not just a number, you're not just a person, you're not just somebody walking down the street. You're you're actually you're a human, and you're somebody that everybody knows, and and you know that when something goes wrong, and when you have to face adversity, you've got four and a half thousand people that are going to stand there and put their hand up and say, what do you want done? Um, and let's get it done. Uh, and and that was really the case for me on a number of occasions. And it's been a really important part of my journey. I think that that huge community support, you know, that whatever you do, um, you, you inspire people, but they also inspire you to become, become better as well. And you know that you have that support. And I think that's a really unique, um, thing coming from somebody from the country. And, a lot of people from the city, I don't think, will ever ever experience that because I mean, I've been living in Canberra for, for seven years and how many people do I walk past on a day, day-to-day basis and how many people do you know? It's it's very, very limited. But I walk down the main street of tomorrow and to walk 50 metres sometimes takes me an hour. And it's, it's awesome that that's the support that you get uh, from the local community and, um, yeah, very unique situation. It is very unique. It's a real genuine support network too. 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's just like a big family in those small communities. Yeah, absolutely. And you do you do experience that the more you go through different types um, of adversities. I think that's when, when small communities stand up and, and show their true colours and they make sure that, that everybody is back up on their feet as fast as they possibly can and and the support from people that you don't really even know um, is, is quite overwhelming at times. So you've mentioned the word adversity a couple of times and we know that you grew up on your family farm in Tamora. Can you take us back to, to those days and to that one day in particular where your life changed forever? Yeah, so growing up in Tamora, I, I always had big dreams um, of becoming something amazing i guess uh when you come from such a small community sports always always a massive part of life um, in the country and it's it's been that way for years and i think it'll continue to be that way for for a number of years to come and uh i always dreamt of, of representing australia in, in either rugby league or, or track and field it was something that i always uh really really aspired to and my brother always kind of gave me that that belief that it was possible. I, watching him train when he was he was a young fella, and I was much younger fella, and um, he he was always dedicated himself to whatever he did, and um, that kind of grew grew a passion within me, and um, it made me try and push my limits in sport and uh, try and become the best. And um, through that time, I, I I was starting to represent um, teams in rugby league and in track and field, and. Um, it was a, a particular day in, in 2002. Uh, it was a Wednesday afternoon and we were been working all day and my brother and I, we had about half an hour left to go on, on the hole that we'd been digging and we're actually packing up to go to representative football training. Both um, my brother and I were in the same same team, obviously different age group. But um, What age were you here in 2002? I was, I was 12, uh, my brother was 16. Um, and we basically, the long story short, um, we'd been digging holes uh, for a fence that we were building as a part of a land care project. So basically we we plant trees on a yearly basis to try and uh, conserve the land and, and get the most um, most out of, of the land that we're in. And obviously farming takes a lot out of it at times, but to be able to put something back in and my family's always been uh, been passionate in making sure they look after the land that, that provides um, an income and, and a lot of went away a life for them. So yeah, we're, we're digging this hole and 2002 was the middle of the drought and ground was rock hard. And um, my dad who'd been working with us majority of the day, uh, he just packed up shop and, and went over to the house to um, to, to get the truck, so to get the tractor that um, he was going to come back over and, and start spraying the paddock that we were working on, and left my brother and I down the paddock to, to finish digging this hole. We only had uh, it was probably about ten to fifteen centimeters left to dig this hole, and just as I mentioned before, uh, being being a drought year, the ground was extremely hard. Uh, my brother and I decided decided it'd be a good idea to stand on the frame of the post hole post hole digger that we were using. Uh, Seems like a good idea at the time, but and realistically, when you look back now, somebody who was 30 kilos like I was and my brother probably wouldn't have been a hell of a lot heavier um, to try and get a little bit more weight on this tractor, uh, on the postal digger to try and get us that last 15 centimetres of depth that we were, um, were trying to get. And I remember looking down and, and realising that my shoelace was undone um, on my right right shoe and I kind of stood there and didn't really do anything about it. And um, the next thing I remember, I... I woke up on the ground, um, looked down, and the lower part of my leg was completely amputated. So uh, 35 kilometres from the closest hospital and two and a half kilometres down a paddock. Um, my brother, 16, and myself, 12, uh, obviously in a quite a serious situation. Um, I instinctively, for don't really know why, I, I jumped up and hopped to the ute. Um, brother turned off the off the tractor and uh, he came around to the to the ute and we started driving over to the over to the house and. 
uh, we knew that the fastest mode of transport was going to be the car and um, we needed to get back to, to help. Obviously, my brother and I um, weren't going to be able to do too much um, in that situation. We needed um, mum and dad's help and um, my brother pulled up in the car and I um, I jumped out of the... So, pulled up in the ute. I jumped out of the, the ute and hopped into the car. My brother ran inside, grabbed a, grabbed a belt and um, come back and tourniquet my leg. And by that stage, my dad was in the car and we decided to, to not wait for the ambulance and start driving uh, into town and... Um, a decision, when I look back now, definitely saved my life. And from when it happened to when I reached um, the ambulance on the side of the road was about 45 minutes. And with a leg completely amputated, um, 45 minutes is a very long time to live. Yeah, so, yeah. So you, you started driving back towards town and you met the, the ambulance was driving from Tamora towards the family home and you met each other on the side of the road? Yeah, yeah. So we'd driven about 20 k's in the ambulance from from all accounts actually went the wrong way and then had to turn around and come back out the other um out our direction and um mum had a bit of bit of trouble reaching the emergency services because we're because we're on a farm the ambulance uh, when mum rang triple zero was asking for the closest street name (laughs) we're in the middle of nowhere and the street name that we're on well the road name at the time was called one thing but the official name was something different that nobody knew so um, when they were trying to mark it on the map they had no idea where we were so mum ended up actually hanging up on on triple zero and calling the Tamora hospital and said yeah pete and um carol reed and peter and sons had an accident head out to his house and they knew where we are we are obviously that's the, the power of the small community as well if you can get in contact with the emergency service directly they know exactly who we are um yeah so they stabilized me on the side of the road and um, then eventually transferred me to Tamora hospital and um, luckily mum rang ahead and everybody who could have been there was there to um, be all hands on deck to, to make sure that I had the best chance of survival. And what happened there? Didn't the uh, helicopter service get involved from there? Yeah, so I, um, they got me into the hospital and tomorrow actually, I don't think I've ever told you either. Um, funny, funny story, I was sitting there, I, I'm a, I was at that stage in particular, I was a really big rugby league supporter and a big supporter of the Canterbury Bulldogs, which my uncle, uncle had played for for a number of years and still was playing at that particular time. Um, and I happened to have, I don't even know why I had an, I had a um, Brisbane Broncos jersey on that day and I remember lying on the bed and there's doctors and people going everywhere and one of the questions that the doctors asked, can we cut that off? Yeah, absolutely. Don't <laughs> this one. If it was a Bulldogs one, I probably would have been a bit more hesitant. But <laughs> So you were you were in a state to answer them and yeah, were you feeling pain at this stage? What was? No, I, I, I look back, I've, I've thought about it a number of times that there's a few stages I remember being in pain, but the human body's really good at forgetting pain. I, it, it's the same with all of us. You, you kick your toe on uh, on a wall or kick your toe on something. You remember it hurts, but after it's after it's occurred, you never can actually reproduce the feeling that um, of what you've just done unless you'd go and do it again. Um, and it's kind of the same when I, when I lost my leg. I remember repeating it hurts, um, but I can't actually remember what, what it actually felt like. So I know it was painful, but I don't know what that pain feels like. Um, but yeah, I stayed. Um, I was conscious all the way up until I got to hospital. Um, the doctors stabilised me and they called the Snowy Hydro Southgate helicopter, which was the local rescue helicopter um, for the region. Uh, they came down to, to Tamora and um, they stabilised me to then be able to transfer me to Canberra. And I remember the whole flight um, from Canberra, uh, from Tamora to Canberra. Uh, probably the most painful experience of the whole lot actually was taking off and landing. Um, the pressure uh, that it was was putting on my leg was, was quite intense. Uh, but it was a service that that definitely saved my life. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't really understand the impact they have on the community. Um, if 
you actually start talking to people, the chances are you know somebody or you know somebody who knows somebody who's been affected by a rescue helicopter like I was. And I was extremely fortunate that they were on hand and, and available when, when I needed them most and uh, quick expertise um, to that to that situation was um, well, guaranteed my survival. And, and I was pretty fortunate that the guy who was on the helicopter that day was, um, his name is Damien McMahon. Um, he was the head of the trauma unit in Canberra Hospital and just happened to be tasked to the helicopter that particular day. And uh, I spoke to a number of people since and they, they said if you could pick anybody in Australia um, who, who could be on the helicopter at that time, they would have picked him. So I was very fortunate that I had probably the best person in the country on the helicopter uh, for my accident. So they did a did an amazing job and um, got me to hospital and um, yeah, I, I survived um, survive the accident. So you, I just want to go back a little bit. You said that when you went up and down in the helicopter, so when they left tomorrow and then when you landed again in Canberra, there was a lot of pressure and that pain. What was going through your mind as a 12-year-old kid when you were flying in a helicopter and you know you've just lost your leg? Do you remember any of the thoughts that were going through about how your life has just changed and what's been affected? What what was going through your mind there? Um, I actually, to be totally honest, I n- never went through my head. I, I'm, it seems like such a, such a foreign feeling when I – or for, foreign thought when I look back now and, and actually realise that you know, I'm sitting there at the scene, leg completely torn off, um, that – I wasn't going to be an amputee for the rest of my life. I, I still thought at that stage and even when I was in the helicopter that yeah, they were just going to get my leg and they were going to sew it back on and I was going to live live a life and I would just not be any different than what I was. Uh, I guess the the realisation when, you, when you're 12 years old, you're not, not really thinking of the bigger picture. If it had happened to me now, you kind of you have those negative thoughts, I guess, and you, you start to, to realise what the bigger impact is. I guess it wasn't until probably two two or three weeks or probably about two weeks after um, my accident that I actually started to realise that, you know, this was, this was real. Um, and I remember the first time I looked under the sheets um, and realised my leg was gone. It was a, it was a pretty overwhelming experience uh, to say the least. And the, the realisation that, yeah, my life has, has just changed dramatically. And you know, that the idea of me representing my country in, in, in a sport and all the dreams that you have when you're a 12 year old kid, you know, the sky's the limit when you're 12 and all of a sudden you go from being a completely fit, able-bodied uh, person to going to be an amputee for the rest of your life. And, and that, that hit me, hit me quite hard, but it was really only, only very brief. Um, I, I actually, mum had told me recently that I actually had a conversation about this before I actually realized everything had happened. I, mum spoke to me and I apparently asked her if I was, um, if I'd lost my leg and she, through the whole trauma, yeah, and okay. I, I, I actually can't remember. It was a, it was a stage in the first few weeks where I can't can't remember um, a lot that was going on. I was in and out of surgery a lot, and there was a lot of stuff going on. And obviously, I was conscious enough at the time to ask a question and have a look, but I wasn't conscious enough to actually be able to remember those conversations that were had. And um, yeah, it was it was a bit of a shock when I when I first discovered. But um, I went through. It was probably about 20 minutes. I was I was crying quite quite significantly, and the the doctors or the nurses that were on the, at the time came around to uh, check what was going on, and they asked me what, what was happening. And just being a 12 year old male, typical, said it was a pain, and not really um, didn't really speak of it. And um, after they kind of left and things had settled down, I, I remember distinctly laying on my on my hospital bed and and realizing that I had a choice to make. Yeah, I could be an optimist or I could be a pessimist. I, I really had the choice to sit at home and complain about it for the rest of my life or I could choose to live a life uh, of happiness and success and find a different path 
um, that I could be successful on. And and looking back at my 12-year-old self, I'm really glad he made the decision he did. Um, it, it seems so wise to someone who's 12 to go, okay, we've got two options. What do we want to do? Um, and I made the choice to, to keep on living and um, haven't looked back ever since. And I guess moving on from there, you and you talked about the things that went through your mind. Have you had all these dreams as a 12-year-old boy to represent your country and be great at sport? And you talked a lot about football, but your family was into water skiing. And so you came out of hospital and continued water skiing? Yeah, so it was, it was something that my family had done for a number of years. I, I, for as long as I can remember, I was always on a pair of water skis or, or a water ski. And it was six months after my accident, our family year to year would go on a, on a water ski holiday. We weren't anything serious into water skiing, but we, we did it socially and um, really enjoyed water skiing. But it wasn't until after my accident that I kind of found a, a bigger bigger sport and realised what it actually was. But, but yeah, six months after my, my accident, we went on a, a water ski holiday down the, down the coast of New South Wales and uh, it was about two or three days into the into the holiday and um, everyone was out having a good old time and enjoying themselves and um, I'm sitting on the bank watching everybody else have some have a bit of fun and it's never fun when you're sitting on the sidelines watching everybody have fun and I, I saw a water ski and, and a life jacket sitting in front of me and I was looking at it going, yeah, you know what, let's give this a go. Um, yeah, it's, it's something I used to do before and why not? Have a, have a have a crack and, and see what it was going to produce and um, jumped in the water, chucked the, chucked the life jacket on and uh, five pulls later I was back up water skiing and, and for the very first time after I, since I lost my leg, I felt free again and it was really the first time that I felt that I could overcome my disability. Uh, I was still obviously going through you know, learning how to walk and just finding my feet again I guess uh, for what life was going to be and, and that was I think it was a big turning point for me to be able to get back up and do something I used to, to a similar level. And yeah, all of a sudden it opened up so many opportunities. Like I used to play teen sports and do a lot of stuff with a lot of people. And when you when I lost my leg, it kind of limited the opportunities that I could have to, to play sport with other people. And being back up on a water ski meant that my brother and my sister and my friends could jump on the ski beside me and, um, and push me off and and do all the stuff that I that I used to do before. And, and that was a, a big, big turning point in, in in the healing process I guess and it really made me realize that yeah if you want to do something enough you can you can achieve um you can achieve it and yeah five pulls later and back up water skiing and living life six again. months after you lost your leg in that traumatic accident only six months later you're water skiing on one leg well it's six months and two days so <laughs> <laughs> actually, the, only counting? Re- the only reason i know that is because i um mum took a photo actually um and has a date stamp on it so it's the only reason i actually know um what date it was so yeah we're still learning to walk and through that process of learning how to walk again with one leg you thought i'm going to learn how to ski again at the same time yeah absolutely and it obviously you talked about it created that feeling of freedom again and it opened up your horizons and it obviously hit you pretty deep there too because you went on to do uh, water skiing competitively to the top level. Yeah, I, I didn't even, at the, that time, I didn't really truly understand what I was actually doing, I guess. Uh, it just happened that somebody who was sitting on the bank who was a part of our group, he, somebody who worked with them, their brother was water ski world champion and water ski world champion. Most people go, well, do you even compete in water skiing? And it's, it's a whole sport that I didn't even know existed um, and, and at 12 years old and I unless you're actually involved in it, you probably don't know it exists. And I ended up meeting up with this guy, um, Steve Simmons is his name, and um, he showed me a few different um, different tips and gave me a few pointers on how to be able to 
be able to get up better and, and be able to control the water ski better. Obviously, when you've got two legs, you have two feet on a on a ski. Um, but when you only got one, it moves the centre of mass a lot for, um, further forward on the ski. So it makes it really difficult and you fall off a lot. So it only makes sense to actually move the one foot you have in between where the two feet would normally be. So gave me a few tips and um, got me skiing a little bit better and actually invited me to a competition that was a few weeks later and um, I was weren't doing anything so like well, why not turned up to this competition introduced to this whole new sport and um yeah it was something that I kind of fell in love with I guess that I'd, I'd overcome my disability with with water skiing and I think I found my competitive passion again um by getting back involved in tournament skiing um and it kind of filled two very big holes that I had I guess um after I lost my leg and from there it kind of just exploded um Three years later, I represented Australia for the very first time um, when I was 15. I uh, went to Belgium and um, yeah, skied for Australia and um, skied another two times at World Championships for Australia over the next uh, four years. So, yeah. And then, so just before we get to the end of your water ski career, you, you were, like you said, you've represented Australia a few times. You then came to Canberra in, was it 2008 or 2009? 2008. And you, because you decided you wanted to try and run on a blade, and you did that for the first time in two thousand and eight. Yeah. How did that feel? Um, I, I actually compare it a lot to the very first time I water skied again. Um, so, I, I kind of didn't really expect things to go as fast as they did in, in athletics. So, I was world champion water skier, and then all of a sudden watching a Paralympic Games, got inspired and then ended up down at the Institute and had a running leg and all of a sudden, here you go, the leg's on, go for a run. Um, yeah, it was, there was a huge sense of freedom when I first ran that that very first time again. Uh, it had been, well, it had been a significant amount of time since I'd been able to move faster than a jog um, and a slow jog at that on a walking leg. Um, I pushed the walking legs as fast as I could possibly go, but to have some components underneath me that was actually designed to to move fast, it was it was an incredible feeling. And I remember walking away from the track the first day and and really being hooked on on moving fast again. And it sparked that passion that I had when I was a 12, 11 and 12 year old kid when I was racing uh, 100 meters, 200 meters. Uh, and I knew from that moment that the water ski career was was definitely in, uh, making its um, final appearances and, and that the track and field was something that I definitely wanted to pursue. And you, so you came, you tried the blade, you ran, you got that feeling. But then you actually went back and you did water ski one last time and what happened there? Yeah, so I, um, I spent, so after I got back to, went to Canberra, got my leg, I trained for uh, about five months um, and then went to America and spent three months in America and I, I guess for me, I'd, I'd committed so much time and effort to, to water skiing that I, I didn't want to finish when I was halfway through a cycle. I After World Champs in 2007, uh, I was, I, I'd skied quite well but I, I wanted to take that next step and I'd skied quite well within Australia and um I'd broken a couple of records and, and so on and but I wanted to prove to myself one last time that you know on the international stage I could I could be the best um and I wanted to to finish off um that chapter of my life I I think that had I have left that open it would have always been in the back of my head like what if I hadn't have gone and and, and actually just just closed it and, and competed at that championships. I, I don't know whether I would have been as completely committed to, to track and field. Well, knowing myself, I probably still would have been, but um, 
it was yeah it was a chapter that I had to close and um, yeah it ended up being closed pretty well yeah yeah exactly <laughs> um, walked away with two gold medals and a silver medal as well from my last world championships and uh, I think think when it's it's a successful close it's much easier to to put that part uh, that that part of my life behind me and really learn from what I was able to experience through that time but um, to be able to move on and, and leave it behind and actually move into something um, bigger and better and more exciting I guess well more exciting is probably not the right word but now yeah, bigger and better for sure so you you won you became water ski world champion and then you came back to Canberra and continued learning how to run uh, just to fast track a little bit, you made the 2011 World Championships, which were in New Zealand, but you struggled. And then you came back to win a silver medal at the London 2012 Paralympics. It was almost 18 months later because World Champs in 2011 were in January. And then it was later in the year, the following year at the Paralympics. And you had a huge improvement in your time between that 2011 World Champs and London 2012. Just how was that experience and that period of time between those two major championships? It was probably, when I look back, it was probably the most difficult 18 months um, of my athlete's career because when I was... When I was starting, there's so much stuff you can do. I, any new athlete in any new sport, you progress really, really fast. And I was no different. I, I came out within my 12 months of my, my athletes career and ran super fast. I think I was ranked fourth in the world um, after running for, for 12 months. And yeah, World Champs in 2011, it, it exposed a lot of weaknesses that I didn't realize I had. Um, and it was a really difficult time, not so much to deal with the results that I had um, and the poor performance. That was one side of it, but to actually find the reasons why uh, that was that was difficult. I I did a lot of soul searching to see to find the reason why when I needed to run fast I couldn't. Um, it wasn't that I didn't have the ability to, or my coach wasn't being able to prepare me at the right time. All of that. Um, I believe was was totally fine and um, that was always looking after herself because Irene is an amazing coach and she always um, gets the most out of us at the right time and yeah to to actually eventually find the problem of what was slowing me down essentially was just me not being 100% present on the start line um, did a lot of um, mindfulness meditation um, type of exercises through this this period in this 18 months um, when I tried to to try to fix some of these problems that I had and it was probably the biggest difference between um, the athlete that I am now and the athlete that I was in 2011 uh, to be able to be standing on the on the side uh, sorry standing on the start line being 100% present with what I'm about to do um, was probably the number one thing that's been able to turn me from somebody who finishes mid-pack to somebody who's leading uh, leading the field and I came into came into London yeah, I was ranked fourth um, in the 200 or uh, – sorry, fourth or fifth in the 100 and I, I think I was rec- ranked number two in the world in the, in the 200 and bombed out pretty significantly um, in, in the 200 and um, ran, a, ran a personal best in the first 100 metres and then fell apart towards the back end. And um, it was it was an interesting experience in itself as well. I I went there and I thought realistically my chance was to win a medal in the, in the 200 metres and to not do that was – a Bit, bit of a disappointment um, and something that really could have derailed my whole Paralympic campaign. So to actually have 
have a process in place to actually deal with adversities at that point and be resilient. It was, it was, it enabled me to move past that within a five day period to then turn around and, and execute um, a race and person and, and run a personal best in the final to finish um, with a silver medal when I was realistically expected to finish probably fifth. Um, yeah, it was a, quite an incredible experience. So just um, actually before I ask you that question, I'm just going to say that I have the most vivid memories of watching that race in the stadium, 80,000 people absolutely going crazy and uh, yeah, because we knew how you'd performed the year before and then the, the 200 metres that you just spoke about, it could have completely derailed you but you came through. You won that silver medal and it was so close at the finish line. I can still feel the excitement and the adrenaline running through <laughs> me because I was there, there watching it happen and I knew everything that had gone into your training. And And then you came over after the race and you found your coach, Irina, in the stands and you gave her a big hug and I even squeezed in for a hug there. And uh, and all your family were around and your mates had travelled from Tamora to London to watch these Paralympics. It was, yeah, I'm... I'm my heart is racing now. Yeah, we've both got goosebumps here just going back to that time. It was it was amazing. It was brilliant. So either expand on that or take us into the process that you spoke about. So you did a lot of mindfulness and meditation and you obviously brought that into process for that 100 metres. What did you actually mean by that mindfulness and that meditation? Yeah, in the past, I think it, when, we, when I look back um, and what we worked with with the support psychologist through this time period was – I think I was transferring, well, struggling with the transfer from what I was as a water scared to what it was like to be a track and field athlete. And what I mean by that is when I was a water scare, obviously you can only ski one at a time. So I had the ability to know how many people were in front of me and you could kind of watch when they're falling off and when their runs were finishing. So you kind of give a bit of a reference to when you need to go, but I never ever watched what they're actually doing performance wise. So they could have broken a world record or scared the worst they ever had. And I never actually ever, ever realized what they had done because I knew at that point it was up to me. If I could ski as best that I could, whatever the result was going to be, that was what I was going to be happy with. If that ended up being last or first, as long as I skied my best, then I was going to be happy with that. Fast forward into track and field, it's not like that at all. You can't, you can't exclude the competition. You can't just walk away and concentrate hundred percent on what you are. Well, you can, but at that point I was struggling with that and having seven other guys, eight other guys side by side with you was making me, I was just drifting a little bit out of me being hundred percent present. And to, to be able to fix that, we, we did a lot of meditation stuff and, I remember standing on the start line, both the 100 and the 200. Actually, the, the first part of the of the 200 metres, I executed actually probably the, one of the best starts of a race that I ever had as well. And just the physical, my physical capacity at that point just kind of let me down, I think, and a few little, few little things as well. But I remember standing on the start line and you mentioned that there was 80,000 people and I had a British guy in my race as well. So the crowd was going absolutely ballistic. But at that time, I remember nothing. It was quiet. All I could see was a piece of track that was 1.2 metres wide that was 100 metres long. Um, and I was so focused on what I needed to do that everything outside of that lane was just become irrelevant. And just being able to close my eyes, take some really big controlled breaths um, and introduce the thoughts in that I that I need to be thinking about and not think about the the whole the whole event and the whole experience and what I was about to do, but actually think about the process that I needed to execute to be able to be, um, be the best that I could in that particular moment. And I I'd say that I did that 
quite well. Um, it wasn't perfect. There's no doubt about that. And um, but it was much better than I'd ever done it before. And to be able to be 100% focused, I, I once I got out of the start blocks, which took me a little bit longer than I probably should have had a terrible start. But once I got to 10 meters, like I didn't see anybody else in that race until 10 meters to go. And to be in that zone and still concentrating on what I needed to do up until that point um, was something that I had done much better than what I had ever done before. And that was just come down to being being 100% focused on the task at hand. Um, and that's a lesson we learned. doesn't matter what you do, whatever we are doing, to be 100% focused at that task when you can be can be anything. You'd be cutting up a tomato. If you're 100% focused on what you're doing, you don't cut fingers off. So, um yeah, to to do that when it mattered in front of eighty thousand people was uh, something I'm very proud of. And do you take that skill into your personal life as well? Like you said, you can use it all the time. Do you use that sense of resilience in your personal life? Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, mindfulness is something that probably transfer. It was probably the first thing that started the the transformation of my life journey. I guess um, to the the, the realization of the power of being present all the time, and. I think a lot of people, if you actually sit down and think about how often you drift away just in a conversation, uh, if somebody's talking to you, how often are you actually 100% focused on what's being said? And man, realistically, quite often we, we aren't. Um, and that was probably the first thing I realized. And then just little bits and pieces about what I was doing just to be, to be focused. And it just enabled me to be to be better at what I was doing no matter what I was doing. Um, and it probably helped the most within uni and study actually because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not very academic. Um, there, there's anybody who knows me knows that. And I, I struggle through uni but I, I try my best and um, we, we get it done. But the ability to be able to be focused when I, when I need to be there um, has probably been the difference in a considerable change in uni compared to what I was what I was when I started and where I'm at at the moment as well. You're absolutely right about the the power of presence, and I say that a lot to uh, all generations, but particularly the younger ones because we live in the information age and technology is advancing that quickly, and we've got so many distractions. And I mean, just in our pocket, just on our phone, you've got text messages, you know, WhatsApp, email, uh, Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, all this sort of stuff, and that's just coming from the device let alone everything else in uh, in your surroundings and in reality. And so I often talk to the younger generations who I mentor and just tell them, nail, nail being present because you being present is actually you having more skills than every other person that you'll move through time with. It, it truly is powerful. So I love that you've da- taken it from your sport into, into your real life. Uh, back to London, I also remember chaperoning you as your uh, as you got a drug test after that race and yeah I, I think we we're down in the dungeon under the stadium for quite a few hours because uh, you couldn't pee for the drug test and I remember it was almost 1am by the time we left the stadium after that race <laughs> yeah that was a um uh, anybody who's been involved in sport like before you're about to go and compete, of course you go to the toilet. I don't want to be running when I feel like I need to go to the toilet. So you go um, when you need to and then walk off the track and your, your best friend's standing there telling you that you need a pee and a cup. So, um, yeah, it's always always an interesting experience. But, yeah, it, it took a took a quite a while for um, for that to happen. But I think it was look back, looking back now and uh, pretty much every major championship since, since then, I have had to do the same thing. And 
it's actually quite nice to to sit there almost by yourself and just sit and reflect of what you've been actually able to do in the past period of time. And by the time Rio came around, that was a seven year process. Um, and to sit there and just kind of vent with somebody and there happened to be you in, in, in London and um, a physio in, in Rio and to actually just kind of think through what has just happened and what it actually means, uh, it, I think it really adds meaning to to what's just happened. Uh, if you get, get stuck in the media and just people kind of just being super excited all the time, you kind of miss that moment to reflect um, and to kind of go, that was good, that was awesome, that could be better. We'll, we'll think about that later, we'll identify the problem um, if there was one, but then just soak it up and, and think of the big picture and, and, and what it actually means. You mentioned Rio there, and we'll get to that shortly, but just before we do, I want to – London 2012 Paralympics, silver medal, unbelievable effort. Moving forward to the 2013 World Champs uh, in Lyon in France. And now just briefly, tell the listeners how the 100 metre unfolded for you there. <laughs> yeah, that was a – it's an interesting event. And if anybody has the opportunity, go and, go and look it up on YouTube. It's a, it's a good race to watch. And I am um, leading up – we'll take a bit of a step back. Leading up to that event um, – Six months, well, eight months after after London, I came out and broke the world record um, in the 100 metres. Uh, two months later, the guy who just beat me in London, he came out and broke my world record. Uh, so leading into to Lyon, we had um, – he broke it by 0.02 of a second. So it was extremely close uh, between him and myself. And it, it was kind of already a bit of a mindset change from London where – I'd been the person chasing to all of a sudden I'm now being the person being chased. Um, so that was a bit of a mindset change um, as it was. And I cruised through the heats. I accelerated to 50 metres, was extremely comfortable and wanted to save as much energy as I could for the final and switched off and um, and ran home and, and qualified um, for the final. And uh, 12 hours later, uh, 24 hours later, the, the final came around and had a pretty decent start and ran really well for the for the first 70 odd meters of the race and was significantly in front and uh, with with about 15 meters to go my um my suction of my leg just broke marginally and it broke my concentration it wasn't enough for my leg to fall off or anything like that it just broke my concentration marginally and I kind of drifted out of my my me being present in that moment and I kind of slowed and misstepped just just slightly and um enabled the guy who was coming second to draw up level with me and um we got to the line and I knew I didn't have another another step left in me so I had a huge lunge off my off my blade over the line and he had a big lunge as well and I I looked at him he looked at me and we both shrugged our shoulders and went no idea we, we both had no clue who'd won and um we'd wait around for a little while and the, the German guy looked at me and, and pointed to the screen and um, my name had come up with a number one next to me and he congratulated me um, for, for winning my first world championships. And at that moment, it was a, a huge sense of relief um, to, to kind of get away with one for starters that I um, I, I probably should have won and um, and for for that to, to have happened. Um, then about two minutes later, um, I saw the official results start coming up onto the screen and I saw um, one... Um, Henry Popov and then two my name and when I saw that I knew straight away that they had separated us um in time we'd both run 12.68 seconds but I knew that if it was equal gold medalists they would have put one one and I knew straight away that 
um, I'd finish second um, by a very small margin. And, and After they review the photo finish, right, and they can yeah. actually measure it to such a small increment. Yeah, so um, they the on the original – so they have a – kind of have an automatic photo finish. So the one that automatically goes and fires and they can get the results off that um, straight away. But then when it's obviously close like it was, um, we both run the exact same time, uh, they have to obviously have to go back and review to make sure that the results are actually right. Um, and when they did that review, uh, he'd come out on top and I end up finding the um, the media guy from the IPC and like, like he had a com- communication with the, the photo finish. It's like, what's the margin? He said 0.001. <laughs> Point zero zero one. Yeah, so he'd run like twelve six eight one, and I'd run twelve six eight two. So it's extremely small margins, and I I walked out of that, and I was going through the the mix zone, which is where all the media interviews happen, and I was fortunate enough that our media guy. Um, was there the Australian team media guy was there and he actually pulled me away from all the interviews because it was it was such an emotional experience to to have won my first world championship to then have that taken away by such a small margin and I went back to the Walmart track and I kind of just sat there and there was a few tears and it, it, it seems and I don't think people truly understand when they look at sport and the emotion that's sometimes attached to that and but we dedicate a, a huge amount of our life to being um, the best that we possibly can. And I was more disappointed in me and the thought process that happened in that last 15 metres to be able to uh, – in that opportunity, I thought that I lost a gold medal. Like, I don't think I won a silver medal that day. I think I lost a gold medal. Um, so I went home quite deflated and um, – went back to the hotel, sitting on the bus by myself and not really knowing what to think and just the awkward conversations that everybody's always having when you're not really too sure what you need to say. And I got back to the hotel and um, I turned on turned on my phone and put the Wi-Fi on because I didn't have any internet when I was in, in France because I always, always without a doubt, get a, a message from mum and dad. And it's always something that's – it's kind of the thing that – always gets me through whatever is happening. Like mum and dad send me a message and I know that yeah, regardless of whatever's happened on the on the track, that they're going to love me regardless of what it is. And, and that message is always something that kind of I rely on to kind of get through some of that stuff. It just kind of makes it feel uh, a little bit more personal, I guess. And when I turned my phone on and sitting at dinner for a little while, I was just happened to have it in front of me and I saw a Twitter notification pop up on my phone and all I see is, hold the phone. Like... Geez, what's happened here? And I'd been tagged in the post. So I opened up my phone, internet drops out. Like, come on, finally got the internet to work, phone freezes. Like, I go and open it up and eventually said, um, hold the phone. Judges had reviewed the decision, equal gold medalist. So it was such a, within a two hour period um, of all of this happening, it was such a huge emotion of events and that it had happened in such a short period of time. And still didn't believe that I was a world champion until I stood on that podium the, the next morning and um, had that gold medal around my neck. So within that two-hour period, you had won the gold medal. Two minutes later, you'd lost the gold medal, as you put it. You didn't win the silver, you lost the gold. And then not long later, you'd found out that they did review it and it actually came down to be an absolute dead finish together and you both won the gold medal. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> unbelievable, unbelievable. I can understand how that would have taken you on an emotional uh, roller coaster. So then that was 2013 World Champs. The next World Championships was in Doha. Uh, and then obviously the Rio Paralympics. Now, we don't have to go into a lot of detail, but essentially this is where you got a real taste of gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, for us and 
a lot of Paralympic athletes. So we we probably well without a doubt we rank Paralympic sport and Paralympic games. It's it's the pinnacle. There's no doubt that it's it's a few levels above. The, the quality of competition is is very similar uh, throughout World Championships and Paralympic Games, but the event and everything comes with the Paralympic Games. And you speak to Olympic, the, all the Olympians as well, they'll probably say the same thing. Uh, and it's it's so unique because you get once one chance every four years to be able to do it. Um, and it was it was something that I, moving out of London, I didn't want to be finishing second again. Gold is what I wanted. And it was the thing that was on my mind every single day, the days that I didn't feel like getting up and training, it was, it was a thing that got me out of bed. It was, it was that one thing to be, to be a Paralympic champion. I, that's something that I had always wanted. And that's part of the reason that I moved into to Paralympic sport is to be a champion. And yeah, it was a lot of pressures and a lot of things that were happening within that, those, those years. And, um, to be able to execute a race that was good enough to, to walk away with a gold medal was something that was truly, truly very, very special. And I didn't want to take away from that whole experience of Rio by saying we'll cut it short, but the, the the reality is that that was your six, seven-year journey from that first time when you ran on a blade that we spoke about just before at the Australian Institute of Sport and gone through, you know, hardships 2011, come back 2012, win, lose, win a gold in 2013, you won gold in 2015, and then you won gold. There was no dispute in Rio. <laughs> you crossed that line in front and that gold medal was yours. And same as London where it was just for myself um, a really emotional experience because seeing you from day dot when you're learning how to run and then to go through that whole process and that whole seven-year journey, for you it must just feel almost like mission complete. Yeah, it, it, absolutely actually. It's there's still a couple of little things that are unfinished business, but yeah, it was it was the one thing uh, that I wanted to to walk away with um, when I left left the sport. Whenever that whenever that's going to be, uh, was to be a Paralympic champion. You can be world record holder, you can break every record in the book, but the reality is that those records will be broken. And and Paralympic sport progressing the way that it is, um, that'll always happen. But to be Paralympic champion, nobody can ever take that away from me. And that was really the icing on the cake. I'd. I'd improved so much as an athlete, but it's so much as a person, especially in probably in the last two years, 18 months, um, I'd learnt so much about myself and and about a lot of people around me and, and the way that I can have an impact on the world. And it was at that moment when I crossed that finish line that I realised that I was definitely on the right journey. And, and the the decision that I'd made in 2008 to, to step into Paralympic sport was, was 100% the right one. And it was a big tick of the box and you know, if I had to finish my career now and I'm which is not happening and I'm, I'm continuing on to Tokyo but if I finish my career now I'll retire as a as a Paralympic champion and and that's something that's pretty proud I'm pretty proud of and something that I'll definitely um, enjoy for the rest of my life and you should be very proud and what truly inspires me about your journey is that you you went from being an able-bodied kid with all these dreams lost your leg had to question well you know is this going to happen then you got into your sport. You went to the top of your game. So you were world champion water ski, top of your game. And then you chose to go all the way back to the bottom and not just learn how to run, but you had to learn how to walk again in a certain way and then learn how to run and then build your process up that seven-year period to get right to the back to the top to be Paralympic champion. That That – that ability to just have that choice and say, yep, I'm the best here, but I actually have bigger visions. I actually have 
other dreams and goals and I'm going to chase them. I know it's going to take me back to the bottom, but I'm going to chase them. And I think there's a real lesson to be learned for everyone in life off the back of that. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing that when I look back at that journey and the journey I'm still on essentially is that I found the right people and I found really good mentors. Um, my coach, Irena Divoskina, I if I had a stepped into any other coaching environment as the athlete that I was, probably most people would have looked at me and went, you haven't run for that long, don't worry about it. You're 165 centimetres tall, you're just not going to be competitive in this world. But she saw something and she saw me as as a project, but she knew that she could change me as an athlete and change me as a person. And to have her side by side with me through this entire journey, honestly, with anybody else, I don't think it would have happened and it wouldn't have played out the way that it has. And it's a vital part to have the right people um, around you through this this whole experience, what, whatever that may be. And I'm fortunate that I've had those right people around me. Absolutely. And I can see when you do step away from your sport or even before you do uh, after Tokyo 2020, you know, it's a lesson that you'll take with you and you will you will achieve your goals. Because like I said, there's a lesson there for everyone to be learned. I, It's so easy for us to get stuck in our lives uh, and and think that our values and our belief systems are rigid and we just have to continue a path that's dealt to us when in reality we all have choice. Everything in our life is a choice. Yeah, I, um, I actually read an article. It's funny, sometimes you do some media stuff and you say some stuff that you don't even realise. And I read something the other day that I was quoted and I um, basically what I said is that the path that we, we're on, we, we do by choice. And the, the choices that we make today will reflect on our what we are going through at the moment and what we're going to go through tomorrow. So ultimately everything that we go through, we do by choice. And I think just being responsible for that and actually looking at that and going, okay, what is this going to mean bigger picture? If we like it, continue on. If we don't like it, we have the power to change that. And the idea that somebody is doing something that they don't like and they think they're being forced to do that is such a foreign feeling to me because we have the power to change that. And if we want to, we can. And I, I had done everything that I wanted to in water skiing. So the choice was pretty easy, really. Um, yes, challenge myself and step away from something that was so secure, but go through a significant change that was was really going to determine the next path of my life. Um, scary, extremely scary. Um, but when I look back at it now, because I... I did the right things and made the right choices throughout this process. I, it, it happened, well, so happened that it was successful and I think that's more of a mindset thing rather than anything else. If I, if I ever doubted that it was possible, I think it probably wouldn't have been possible. Just not let that doubt creep in. And Scotty mentioned before he's only 165 centimetres tall. If you see him, you'll think, ah, he's not really built to be a sprinter. So, mate, you are vertically challenged and all the more reason for you to uh, obtain that grit and that determination to pull you through. There's also a lot of other one percenters that people don't realise that we won't really go into too much. But as a leg amputee of above knee, you know, you, you've you worked to help design your knee joints and um, adapters and worked with engineers based on oil viscosity and everything like that. There's so much that goes into your sport and you to be the elite athlete you are. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a, actually a really a big part of the sport that I like. Um, it's different to everybody sport and there's a number of added challenges, but in the past I've been able to work with the right people and, and have ideas and collaborate ideas to, to come away with something that enables me to run as fast as I possibly can. Now, you're a great mentor and role model. 
who oozes mental resiliency, and we've mentioned it a little bit. It's a bit of a buzz theme in sports these days, uh, the the mental resiliency. But I want to know what what it actually means to you. Yeah, I think my mental resilience side of me and sport actually came from more external from sport, to be totally honest. It's rather than um, the mindfulness stuff, which was definitely started in sport and then then kind of went out into my life, the resilience stuff definitely started external from sport and has worked its way into the sport. And I went through a bit of a a tough period uh, in 2004 14, 15, um, where a number of things kind of happened within a short period of time and it really tested who I was as a person um, and really tested the way that I went about things and and what life was for me. Um, And I managed to get through that experience and it wasn't anything that was really quite major. It wasn't one thing that was major. It was like I lost two friends within a short period of time um, at the end end of 2014, 2013, 14, I actually can't remember. It was just that, that time period of um, my life where there's so much stuff going on. Um, and that kind of, it really hit me hard. I, one of these guys in particular was a huge part of me getting, uh, overcoming my adversity with, with me losing my leg. And uh, him losing his life to suicide was, was something that really quite affected me um, significantly. And then two weeks later, I lost another friend in the same way. Um, and things in sport weren't going the way that I would like. I was injured and um, a few other little things that kind of kept popping up as well. And it wasn't that I couldn't deal with one of these things individually. It was just one thing after another after another. Then all of a sudden, you kind of get caught in this dark spot and you don't really know what to do. And um, it really... It really made me think. Uh, I think that's probably the, the biggest thing. It made me think about how in the past I was able to overcome these things and, and what I could do at that moment to to kind of move forward and actually keep living the life that I wanted to and keep living that, that high quality of life but also make sure that my my lifestyle with my sport and everything didn't take a, a negative turn to that as well. And um, more recently I've been able to more in the process of putting together a program that is based around a lot of real life experience of what I've been through and a few strategies that I've been able to, to implement, to be able to get through some of these times. And it's a really, well, when I look at it, it's a really simple, um, simple step process that, um, anybody can implement into their life. And it really focuses on the positive side of what's going on and, um, and helps, helps me move through the negative experience, whatever that may be, whether it's small or whether it's quite large. Um, and with that, that, those processes that I have in place, it's got me through some of the, some, some pretty tough times since that I've, um, come back and actually wrote this program. And, um, like Rio was, I look at Rio Paralympic games as something that was a success because I was resilient there was a lot of stuff that was happening outside of the sport that a lot of people don't actually even realise and a lot of stuff within the sport that was happening that, that I kind of kept quiet within the media and a lot of people out external from my support network didn't know that what was going on. But having a, a process in place enabled me to to focus on what I needed to and, and overcome those adversities and actually execute what I needed to when I needed to. So you talk about writing a program and you obviously learned a lot about that resilience and and like you said, it took you through some tough times and I think a really good way for us as humans to think about 
circumstances that happen in our life is that nothing ever happens to us. It only ever happens for us. And these big circumstances that happen in your life and unfortunately losing a couple of mates and then your injuries and everything like that are these adversities that have happened in your life. And you obviously took that mindset that it didn't happen to you and you went a step beyond of not just learning how to deal with that resilience yourself to build through, but you saw the power in that. So you you sort of mentioned that you've created a program to help people step by step through that. Yeah, it's still in the in the final stages of being completed, but yeah, it's it's something that it became really important to me to to lose somebody who was a vital part of my my journey of becoming an amputee and, and overcoming that to, to lose that person. It kind of, it made me realize that sometimes we don't ask a question that we should ask. And sometimes just having a conversation with somebody is enough to, to save a life essentially. And the idea behind this program was to, to try and ensure that everybody could live the best life that they possibly can. Um, whatever that may be and whatever people choose their life to be um, is irrelevant. Whatever they are doing, if they can do it to the best of their ability and, and live a long, happy life doing what they love, it was something that I, I wanted to try and give to people through my experiences. And I, I, I'll never claim to be a resilient expert. I, the, what this program was based around is a real-life experience, everyday person who's been through some pretty crappy things but I've come out the other side and, and I've learned a lot and been able to implement my strategies within some adversities that I've gone on um, and some things I've had to go through since and know that it works um, and just give people that, that, that life quality that everybody deserves. And I think it's great the way you elaborated there and I haven't seen any of this product or that you speak of but I'm excited for it to come to life because you said it's not designed for people who have uh, experienced adversity it's designed for people to live their great lives and that's where I think uh, people sort of get a bit caught up and think oh, I don't need to learn how to be resilient until something goes wrong but why not to learn, learn how to be resilient in everyday life and then you are prepared because reality is we're all faced with shit mm-hmm. in our lives and when you are ready to deal with it then you don't have to go into those deep dark times so much yeah absolutely man I, I see it day to day I mean one of the steps in this process is is about being positive um, I think positive in positivity in life is probably the number one thing to being resilient if you're positive you'll be resi- resilient it's a little sense of positivity in any situation will always make you better and I see it so often when people come home from work and they're negative and the first things that come out of their, 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 their mouth is, is negativity, where the reality is the negative stuff that could have happened in their day could have taken up half a percent of their day, but that's the thing that they remember. By changing your, your mindset to think about the positive things that happened, you forget about the negatives and you move on from it, and it becomes a part that's not, not relevant in your life. And the, the time, what we choose to invest our time in, whether it's negativity or positivity, that's kind of the life that you'll that will reflect um the, the quality of life that that you'll have um and yeah I, I think that's the number one key point with 
with this um, resilience program that will eventually be released. I love it because mental resiliency to me, from what I've learned with working some of the with some of the world's best coaches, with some of the world's best athletes, and learning from a lot of successful entrepreneurs and uh, health experts and enthusiasts. Mental resiliency is actually about uh, having the ability to overcome adversity or failure in a sense. Uh, And, you know, failure is only failure if we don't learn from the experience. But it's about having the skills and the courage to bring all the pieces of the puzzle back together and, and get yourself through those tougher times. So... Like I said before, it excites me about what's going to come out of this uh, this mental resilience program that you're putting together. Now, uh, you did mention there a few times throughout this chat already that you you love what you've been able to establish and know that you can give give back. And I want to elaborate a little bit on some other great things that you're doing outside of your sport to give back to uh, charities and communities that have, well, helped to save your life and also uh, help support your career. And one of those drivers is Life Tees. And actually, it was here on the Gold Coast last year when we were on a training camp uh, preparing for Rio that we designed your tee. Now, just tell the listeners what what goes into what this – I'm, I'm wearing your tea, by the way, <laughs> just for everyone listening. I'm wearing the Scotty Reardon Grateful Tea. Talk us through what your design is about and what it means to you. Yeah, I, my design for the, the life tea, and when, when you came to me uh, last year with the idea of being able to give back um, to, to my charity, I was some, something I was extremely, extremely keen to do and something I was very grateful to be able to get the opportunity to actually give back to to well, Snowy Hydro Southcare. So my my charity is um, well was the the helicopter that picked me up from my accident. Um, so at that time they relied 100 percent, well not 100 percent, significant amount on um, public donations to keep the helicopter in the air. And obviously for me that was something that was hugely important to to make sure that every other person who was in my situation had the ability to be able to be rescued by by such a great service. And with the, the grateful tea, I, I didn't just want it to be you know, something simple. I wanted it to be a, I wanted it to be a story to be told there. And um, so, what we end up designing was um, we have a helicopter on the front um, that obviously represents the helicopter, and it actually is um, a, a sketch of the Snowy Hydro Southcare helicopter, the one that uh, saved your life. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> They're the one that saved my life, and um, it has a, a rope that tethers to um, a prosthetic leg that is um, located on the back. And what we wanted to do is to try and kind of show that um, given the opportunity to get your life saved by uh, or be rescued by a helicopter, it's more than just them picking you up and dropping you off somewhere. There's more of a story to that. And then it, it was the pathway to then me being able to live and, and become a Paralympic champion and um, and live a cra- pretty incredible life since. Um, so we wanted to tell that story a little bit in this T-shirt and um, – I think that the life T-shirts were and are an incredible idea to to be able to donate a hundred percent of the profits that we make to to back to Southcare at this point and um, and to be able to give back to the charity that that helped me so much um, in that time. Although things have changed a little bit since we we originally set out on this journey with the life T with um, Snowy Hydro Southcare now being um, government funded and now not not needing um, donations from people like us and and life, um, 
but yeah, so they're no longer the life tees and the money that we've raised is no longer go, going to go towards them. But um, we've chosen another charity that we're going to to support and um, hopefully have as big of an impact as what the the Southgate helicopter um, was going to have. It definitely still does have um, a different capacity. Yeah, it's a bit of a bittersweet sort of situation for you, isn't it? Because uh, you know Snowy Hydro is major part of your life and uh, and. They have relied heavily on, cha- uh, sorry, on donations over the years, and we raised this money through your Life Tees campaign. But now the government has uh, said they are a vital part of the community, so we're going to fund them, so they can't actually accept this money anymore. So here we are selling your awesome teas, and we're still donating 100% of the profits to your chosen charity, which I'll let you talk a bit more about. But it is the one that you've chosen now is Batir. Now Batir is a a for-profit organisation, sorry, a non-for-profit organisation and they uh, they work around the youth mental health space and I think you've already sort of told a bit of the story about losing a couple of friends to suicide in Tamora. So, yeah, tell us what it means now to be able to donate the profits to another charity that's so close to your heart, who you're actually an ambassador for too. Yeah, so Batir is something that, well, we'll go back to... A little bit more resilient stuff and um, losing a couple of friends. When I when I was going through the grieving phase of um, that everything that had happened with losing my two friends, I was trying to find. I, I believe that in every negative experience, there's a positive experience that needs to be needs to come out of it, and that seems like something that's extremely difficult to do um, when you've just lost two friends. What can that be? That positive thing that enables me to to use what's happened as a good thing and to be able to make some change. Um, there's a couple of things that have come out of that, and the number one thing that I noticed first was um, a friend of mine came up to me and asked me how how I was going, and in Australia, that's it rolls off the tongue daily almost with every person you see. G'day, how you going? That's just kind of the way that Australians live their life and it's something that we're – it's just so built into Australians. And when he turned around and said, no, I actually want to know how you're actually doing. Like how how things – what's going on? Do you need to have a chat? And that was probably the first time that I realised that that was what had happened to our friend. Uh, it was able to change a bit of a mindset within the people who it had affected, and they were no longer just asking the question because it needed, but because it is asked generally, but actually ask the question because it was an important question to ask, uh, and that kind of sparked something. And I realised at that point that there's there's conversations to be had, um, and here at that time through life um, and a few different avenues kind of popped up um, as an organisation that I. I kind of looked at and I like what they did. Um, I like they go into schools and they they get the conversation, um, start this conversation and, and get people talking about mental health as if it's something that that needs to be spoken about, not something that needs to be put under the under the front carpet and then left alone and, and try and deal with it yourself. So it was it was a pretty easy decision when I needed to go and think about what was happening with our life tees and the money that we donated, and um, so we we chose Batir and. Um, the the big picture with Batir is actually one that really excites me and it's something that I've thought about for a long time. I, I, I kind of want to leave this earth with a bit of a legacy um, and whatever that may be, hopefully in a, in a number of years. Um, but Batir, I think, is something that is going to enable me to be able to do that through um, through Life Tees and, and a bit of collaboration where we are going to go hopefully into tomorrow originally and, and run a program through tomorrow but 
the more t-shirts we sell and the more money we raise, um, we would like to get somebody within the Riverina area, which is the area that um, Tamora is located in, um, be based out of Wagga Wagga potentially, and and they'll um, be able to service the, the region that I that I come from that helped me so much. So Tamora helped me a lot, but also the smaller communities around Tamora also did a lot and chipped in a lot through my accident. And to be able to give back to that community through um, through mental health. Um, uh, and getting the conversation going through Batir is, is something that I, I'm really, really passionate about and to be able to give back to the community that helped me so much and to try and make sure that another young man or woman or even the older generations, another person's not going to lose their life um, to what's going on in their head um, and the struggles that they're going through, to actually be able to get people to to link the dots, I guess. And we all have the support network. We all have people, we have ways to get through things, but sometimes we just don't have a, a method of how we're going to do that. Uh, and Batir, I believe, connects those dots. Um, and by connecting those dots, hopefully we can save a few lives. Is a true legacy, Scotty. And you, you said it, that the money raised now from these shirts that you originally di- designed for Snowy Hydro, who had saved your life, now those profits are going towards funding a program that it doesn't currently exist in Tamora or those communities that's based around smashing the stigma of mental health and you're raising money to get that program into your communities. This, I've actually got uh, butterflies listening to you speak <laughs> about that because we actually haven't spoken about this, this change too much so it's awesome to hear it come straight from you and this is what I, I love about life tease that it's like a gratitude cyclone because I'm grateful that I can help someone like yourself you're grateful that you have a platform to give back to these charities that have saved your life or been a big impact in your life these charities are grateful that uh, the the platform exists and people like yourself give back and it, it truly is and you know you're in the cyclone it's just this cyclone of gratitude going around and, and hopefully there's a huge number of people that will be grateful that Batir come through a school that they're a part of. Um, and then, again, that, that just starts a whole new whirlwind of, um, of, of the cycle. And if, you can, if I can get you to talk about it and you talk about it to somebody else, and then it just increases exponentially. If, if we get more people having that conversation and we, we spread the positivity and we spread the, the knowledge that there are avenues and there are people who will listen and be not alone. Absolutely. And we're going to, I will link up uh, all these things that we're talking about in the Batir website because it's super powerful. I'll link that up in the show notes for people to be able to refer to. Now, we're going to wrap things up shortly, Scotty, uh, but I'm all about action and would love to know what your advice is on what specific action our listeners can take today to become more impactful in their lives and their communities. Yeah, really good question. I've actually been thinking about this a little bit and I think the the biggest thing in action with anybody, I, I think that if you find a passion, um, whatever that may be, you go and pursue it and you make it work. I, I know a lot of people who are miserable doing a job that makes them a lot of money. If the action that they need to take is to step away from that, go study an education degree because I think believe that education degree is going to impact the next generation of people. I I'm a hundred percent for that. I don't in my in my my attitude is I don't care how much money I'm making if it's nothing, but I'm making a huge impact on the world, and I can have 
if I can shape the future generations and, and the current generations um, with what I'm doing, uh, then that's a huge positive. So do what you love. If you have to step away from something to do what you love, then absolutely do it. Well, it's like you when you made the choice to step away from something you were best in the world at to go back to the bottom and, and start again. Yeah, yeah. Good advice. Take the action and do something that makes you happy. Now, before we dive into, we're going to do a fast five questions that I haven't actually told you about. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, I want to give you something, Scotty, and I would love to give you a life tee, but uh, you have your own life tees that you designed. You're currently wearing Brandon Stark's uh, Souls for Souls life tee, and you've got uh, Sarah Walsh's Dare to Stare life tee. You're a bloody good supporter, and you've already got all the life tees. And then I thought, hang on, I actually designed a limited edition life tee to raise money for Batir. I'll give him one of those, but you've already got all the <laughs> colours of those. You're a really good supporter. So what I'm actually going to give you is a life floss band, and I know you've already got life floss bands, but you use use them all the time and I saw yours and it's a bit faded and ready to be replaced so there we go there's the <laughs> perfect that'll get plenty of use too don't worry <laughs> <laughs> and when we get a new life tea out there's one coming your way <laughs> now just quickly uh, where can our listeners learn more about you so on social media and how can I and our listeners help you on your journey um, I'm at all the, the normal normal stops, basically. Um, so my main platform is Instagram uh, and Facebook. Um, also on Twitter as well, but not as proactive on Twitter. Um, all at Scott Rito, um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, all the same. We'll have that linked up in the show notes. Yeah. Um, and how they can help me. Um, I guess it's not directly helping me. I'm just sharing, sharing some of the, the things that, um, drive me and are passionate about me through social media is always a really good way to be interactive and actually writing me a message and and saying and telling me what what's good about this show what do you like about this show what can I continue to improve on that always helps as well um, but yeah I think the biggest thing that anybody can do for me is start a conversation with a friend go to them um, and and ask them how they are and have a conversation. Go somewhere for a walk and, and have a chat with, with your best mate who you haven't asked who they, how they actually are. And I think that, for me, that would help me a lot with what I'm doing because and if I can impact um, somebody else's life through this, this podcast and through what I'm doing um, in sport and, and life, um, yeah, that would be something that's um, pretty incredible. Very selfless. Okay, now the fast five questions. Don't give yourself too much time to think about them. Just let them roll off the tongue. <laughs> okay, first one. What's one habit you wish you could change? Uh, going back to my old ways. Um, yeah, just instead of spending time for myself, just falling back into what's happening around the world and, and social media when it's not relevant to what I need to do. What makes you feel absolutely pumped and exhilarated and energised? Um, crossing the line first, um, but not so much crossing the line first, but actually sharing that with people. Have you ever washed a dog? Washed a dog? <laughs> How many times a week should be, should be there? Yes, absolutely. I would, um, my girlfriend bought a dog with, uh, with her when she came to Australia. So yes, he, he likes running around and being a madman. So he lives inside. So he has to be washed a couple of times a week. There you have it, everyone. Scotty Rito has washed a dog. <laughs> now, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Do something you love. And what are you most grateful for in your life right now? Um, good one. Um, I think I'm most grateful for the people that I have in my life. Um, I'm very fortunate that 
I I live a pretty good life and everything around my life is relatively secure. But I I often spoke about when I was when I didn't have a partner. It was the I I had all these things that I was going through and achieving, but not having somebody to share that with was something that I that I missed. Um, and now I'm, I'm definitely the most grateful thing that I have in my life is people to share what I'm doing and for them to share their life with me. Scotty Rudo, you're a legend. You're authentic, living congruently with your values, and you truly are resembling mental resiliency at its best. Keep shining your light, buddy. Thank you. Pleasure. And there it is, another humble human paving the way for all of us to learn from and be inspired by. Scotty is only 27 years old, but wise beyond his age and certainly cementing that impactful legacy. I'm sure you all gained a lot from this one and don't forget to check out the show notes for all the resources we spoke about and to reach out and support Scotty on his journey. One of the things we forgot to speak about was his time with Usain Bolt and the fact he actually got Bolt behind his Life Tea campaign. Usain Bolt ended up wearing Scotty's Grateful Tea and helping him raise the awareness for his charities. It was awesome. So there's also a link in the show notes for this great pic of Scotty and Usain Bolt doing that famous Bolt pose. If you like this episode, please jump onto your podcast app and give us a five-star review. This helps immensely for me to be able to continue delivering value to you. It doesn't matter what app you're using, whether it's Apple Podcasts, which is formerly known as iTunes Podcast, whether it's Podcast Addict or Stitcher or whatever it is. You guys subscribing and downloading each episode is what keeps this podcast alive. And also, please share with your friends, your family, your community, and everyone you believe will benefit from this podcast. Don't forget to give me your feedback on what you loved and what you want to hear more of, so what value I can help bring into your reality. Reach out to us on social media, so Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Life for Excellence. That's at L-I-F-E-F-O-R-X-L-N-S. And you can also find us at yourlifeofimpact.com. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.